from APM, American Public Media, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. For more than a century, Americans have been fighting over how to teach children about the birds and the bees in public schools. A new book argues that for all the fuss about sex education in America, students are getting precious little of it. Historian Jonathan Zimmerman's book is called Too Hot to Handle. Zimmerman is a professor of education history at New York University. His book was featured recently in a new podcast called Us and Them. It's a program that explores culture war battles, like fights over sex education. A recent episode of Us and Them focused on how Americans have struggled with sex ed. Here's an excerpt with Professor Zimmerman and host Trey Kay. Why is sex ed so important? Well, um... (laughs) It isn't that important, I argue in my book, in many countries, because it's so slim, right? Because it's so brief and restricted. John says students in most industrialized countries just get a few hours of sex education a year, at most. It was a real challenge to write a book about a subject that happens so little. It was like the Seinfeld thing. How do you have a, how do you have a, a TV series about nothing? Well, I don't think it's about nothing. And I think the reason to study it is precisely because it does illuminate so many human differences about the subject of sex. There hasn't been a lot of sex ed in schools around the world, but boy, there's been a lot of talk about sex ed, right, among adults around the world. And that's really what my book is about. It's about this cacophony of voices. And I think from that cacophony, we can learn a huge amount about human difference and diversity, even if very little material substantively gets into our classrooms. When did we start teaching sex education in America? Well, Americans started teaching it about 100 years ago during the so-called progressive era. And they started teaching it because as America urbanized, um, the urbanization brought with it a venereal uh, disease epidemic. Put simply, middle-class men were patronizing prostitutes, which has always been a major conduit for STDs, and then going home and infecting their wives. And this caused great alarm um, across America and um, uh, uh, in in the minds of uh, people like Jane Addams, who wrote a whole book about it called The Social Evil. Um, But what was different and interesting about the way Americans addressed this problem was it was through education. So this isn't the only country where they've got that problem. Precisely the same thing is happening in places like Paris and Berlin. But the difference is in Europe, the, the, the remedies, if you will, tended to be legal ones. We've got to regulate prostitution more closely okay, uh, or we've got to ban it. And the American solution was we have to teach people differently. It was an educational solution. And that's why sex ed began in the United States. It didn't begin in America because VD started in America or that there was anything nastier about our epidemic than the one in Europe. It began in the U.S. because of our commitment to education as a remedy for social ills. Can you speak a little bit about how that first was done? I mean, was it something like where it was a more of a mechanical thing, like, you know, we insert part A into part B? Or... Was there some type of moral content? Well, here's the thing. It was mechanical, but part A and part B were like the stems of flowers or maybe very occasionally the uterus of rabbits. Um, uh, If you've heard the term birds and the bees, it comes from this, this era because... The birds and the bees, that is plant and animal reproduction, solved a big problem for sex educators, which is how do we teach about sex without making kids more interested in it? 
Because after all, that was the critique at the time. The critique was we shouldn't introduce this subject because it's going to create kind of prurient feelings and interests in kids. So to respond to that, you've got to explain how you can have a sex ed curriculum that doesn't make kids more interested in sex. And the answer to that question is use plant and animal models. So that's what it looked like, you know. You, you would learn about the pollination of flowers and, you know, you would learn about the rabbits. And then near the very end, there would be something about people, but it would be very both elusive and elusive. It, it would use a lot of kind of indirect illusions. And we know from memoirs and other things that oftentimes it was just lost on kids. The kids didn't get it at the end. They'd say, okay, we've heard all this stuff about plants and animals. Well, what do, what do people do? And I've got a great quote in my book where a teacher in Wales, um, uh, she, she, um, somebody in the class asked her, so do, do human beings, do they get born like, like baby chicks? Because, of course, the teacher had just done a lesson about, you know, the reproduction of chickens. And the teacher says something like, oh, no, it's not nearly as beautiful and I don't want to talk about it now. <laughs> Which I find just a perfect encapsulation, right? So all that stuff in the natural world, that's lovely. Ours isn't. And let's not talk about it. When I was reading your book, I kind of had the idea that the things that I heard people arguing about at the turn of the last century are still seem to be the same things they're arguing about now. Well, you know, the argument really until, I'd say, until the 80s was, should we have sex ed in schools at all? That is, are schools an appropriate venue for this topic? Because there were a lot of people, and in this country, a lot of them circled around the Catholic Church, who just felt like school was an inappropriate place to address the subject. This is a personal matter. This is also a religious matter, and the schools are ostensibly secular. Um, so schools shouldn't be addressing it. Everything changed after the HIV epidemic. That's why I said the 80s. You know, AIDS changed everything um, in this country. Instead of some people being against sex ed and other people being for it, everyone became for it. They just wanted different versions of it, right? So people on the new right who had been objecting to the very presence of sex ed after the HIV epidemic, they support sex ed. It's just they support a version called abstinence only. That is, of course, sex ed, right? Um, but what they, what they move away from is this idea that the school shouldn't address the topic. And that's what I, I think from pretty much, I don't say 1900 up to the 1980s, I mean, it just really seems to be a backing and forth thing about whether we should or whether we shouldn't, whether this is appropriate, whether it isn't, right? Yes. And also, I mean, I, I think part of that I, or beneath that is this idea of whether children, especially young children, are sexual beings. The argument against sex ed before the 1980s was that sex ed would corrupt otherwise innocent kids by introducing the subject. And I think that continues to be a, a huge dilemma in the United States and around the world. You know, the, the Freudian revolution held that kids were sexual in utero, right? I mean, we're all sexual beings. But a lot of people, both in the United States and around the world, have never accepted that. Um, so the idea of introducing this subject continues to be hugely controversial, especially in places like Africa and Asia. And John reminds me that you don't have to travel beyond the U.S. borders to find clashing ideas about sex education. 
You know, I would expect that sex education in Brookline, Massachusetts looked pretty different from sex education in, say, Lubbock, Texas, right? But I do think there are some general comparisons you can make. And I think the most important one is that historically in the United States, sex ed purpose has been to ward off and prevent certain negative social outcomes, specifically unwanted pregnancy and STDs. Um, but in continental Europe, especially Scandinavia, um, sex ed developed a different set of goals, much more oriented towards the individual and trying to help each student, each individual, develop and determine their sexual life. That's a very different goal. And I actually realized the difference. I had an aha moment on this one. And if you've done a project like this, you know, often you're living inside your head so much, you think maybe you're going crazy and you've invented these patterns. And then finally, you find something that really confirms what you were perceiving. And I found that in the archives in Sweden, in the the papers of the leading sex ed organization there. Somebody from Ireland, which had a very conservative form of sex ed, writes a very praiseful, almost sycophantic letter to the head of sex ed in Sweden, saying basically, why do you rock so much? Why are you so awesome? <laughs> and, and more specifically, why are your teen pregnancy rates so low and your teen STD rates so low? And the guy is named Carl Bothius, a very famous figure in, in Sweden. He writes back a very kind letter in which he says, thanks a lot for your kind remarks. He says, it's, it's true that our teen pregnancy and STD rates are lower than yours, but we don't know if that's because of sex ed, which is true. And that's a really important point. You know, y- y- there, there are a million other things that socialize people. So it's true that our rates are lower than that, but we don't know if that's because of what we do in schools. And then he says, and by the way, that's not the goal. He says, of course, nobody wants unwanted teen pregnancy or STDs, right? But that's not our goal. Our goal, again, is to help each individual lead a fulfilling sexual life. John says that for the most part, American schools are a long way from sharing that goal. I was um, on a plane last week, and I was, this is embarrassing, I was reading my book, which is something I try never to do. But I was going to a talk, and I had to remind myself what the book said, and sometimes you've got to do that too. So the guy's sitting next to me, very kind, and he sees what I'm, I'm reading. He says, how's the book? And I say, it's pretty boring. I wrote it, uh, and which is always what I say if somebody sees me reading something that, that, that I wrote. And then we start talking, and this guy, he was... Um, uh, yeah, he was a contractor, a builder, somewhere in a different part of the country. And um, he says, you know, when my daughter turned 16, she came home and she asked me, um, you know, if she should have sex with her boyfriend. And I didn't answer. I said, come with me. And we got into my truck and we drove to the poor part of town where people live in trailers. And I didn't say anything. I just drove through it. And um, by the time we got to the end, she said, OK, Dad, I get the point. We can go home now. This is a form of sex education, right? Remember, everyone gets sex ed. My, my book is only about what happens in schools, right? Which is a very tiny part, right? A negligible part, I would argue, of the sexual knowledge that people get, right? This dad was giving sex ed, without a doubt, right? Now, what kind of sex ed is he giving? He's giving what I would call a very American form of sex ed, which is watch out, danger ahead, right? Um, uh, sex is a dangerous thing. And so what you need to do is avoid it or do it in a very safe way. Because if you don't, there are going to be all these terrible things that happen to you. 
And you're going to end right. up on the poor side of town. Exactly. Right. One of my colleagues who is a podcast host, she's Danish. Mm-hmm. And just so you know, I'm talking about Leah Tao, the host of the Strangers podcast. Sometimes on her podcast, she shares that when she was growing up in Denmark, parents of her boyfriend and her parents would say, you know, we, you can come and sleep at our house and you can cohabitate. And, and just like I right now, who have a, a teenage son, and I'm taking him out often to drive the car. Yeah. I mean, it seems like in a way that's what these Danish and Scandinavian parents are, are doing. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And you can see some of that in the sex ed classrooms, too. You know, you can read about Swedish sex ed classrooms where they don't just show you a condom or demonstrate it, which is the thing that always creates controversy here. They, they give out the condoms and they tell the kids, look, go home and experiment with these so you know what they feel like. And so when it's time for you to use one, you'll know what you're doing. Um, much more explicit, much more direct. Um, but here's the part I think that might surprise your, your podcast colleague, depending on when she lived in Denmark and how recently she left. Um, those societies have become immigrant societies. And that fact is changing the sex ed scenario because a lot of the newcomers, not all of them, but a lot of them are extremely uncomfortable with the kind of approach that you're describing. And Sweden, I read recently, it's got about 10 million people. One million of them were born in another country. Sweden is now fractionally more of an immigrant society than America. But it's all of incredibly recent vintage, right? Most of it comes from, you know, North Africa, the Middle East, South Asia. And in terms of their presumptions about sexuality, a lot of these newcomers are extremely conservative. And they hold their kids out of school to, to, to protest sex ed. Uh, you know, they stage sometimes demonstrations. John says that some of these immigrant groups have forged surprising alliances in their fight against sex education. Let's take the United Kingdom, for example, right? The United Kingdom has witnessed since the 80s a massive influx of immigrants from the subcontinent and from the Middle East. Before they got there, sex ed was already a contested subject. But it became a much more contested one after they arrived because people started boycotting schools that taught sex ed. But more interestingly, these immigrants started to join hands politically with Tories, with conservatives in parliament, with whom they agree about nothing except this, right? They don't agree about immigration itself, right? Because many of these Tories are quite anti-immigrant in their impulses. But on the question of sex ed, they join hands. On the continent of Europe, this really scrambles politics, I think, in in ways that for Americans are fascinating and confusing. So, for example, in countries like Netherlands and Sweden, one of the things you'll hear now from anti-immigrant groups is we shouldn't let in these newcomers because they don't believe in gay rights. It's not an argument you you would ever hear in America. You wouldn't hear somebody in Texas who wants to make a wall between Texas and Mexico say... We shouldn't let in these Mexicans because they don't believe in gay rights. Because of the way our politics is configured, I think it's quite likely that the person who wants to put up the wall doesn't believe in gay rights either. So they're not going to say, don't let these Mexicans in because they don't believe in gay rights. But that's what you hear in countries like the Netherlands. Here's something that struck me about Professor Zimmerman's argument. Many schools in the United States have embraced this scary, punitive model of sex education that's supposed to make kids think twice about having sex. But the bottom line is, our rates for teen pregnancy and STDs are still distressingly high. Do do you think that our haphazard approach to sex education 
has it backfired in in really kind of the outcome that we're seeking? Well, here's the thing. It's very hard to answer that question precisely because it's so haphazard, right? I mean, if a kid has a total of five or six hours of sex ed in an academic year, how, as a matter of social science, are you going to show what, quote, effect that has? We found that this idea that teaching about abstinence will make people abstain, there's really no evidence for that, no strong evidence, right? But there isn't also a lot of good, strong evidence that teaching what you know, people on the left like to call comprehensive sex ed, including contraception and abortion, all these subjects. We don't have a lot of sustained evidence, although we have some glimmers, that that changes people's behavior either. Look, I think all of us who work in the world of schooling and education, we exaggerate the influence of formal educational institutions. Why? Because we're biased, right? I'm a teacher. But I don't think that schools have had nearly as much influence on kids' sexual ideas and behavior, even in places like Sweden, than sex educators like to think. The real influences have always been peers and now what I call screens, you know, mass media. Students get their information from places other than school. That was the case when we surveyed them 100 years ago, and it's still the case today. That is New York University professor Jonathan Zimmerman, the author of Too Hot to Handle, A Global History of Sex Education. And we want to thank the podcast Us and Them for letting us share this interview with you. You can find links to Jonathan Zimmerman's book and the Us and Them podcast at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you'll find more podcasts about issues in K-12 and higher education and an archive of more than 100 documentary projects. You can also let us know what you think of our coverage, AmericanRadioWorks.org. We're on Twitter at AMRadioWorks and on Facebook at American.RadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from Lumina Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.